I'm pissed off. It's episode eight of the Breakdown Podcast. I'm pissed off. People piss me off sometimes. Why do people piss you off? Why are you so pissed off? It's 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 these petitions, these online petitions that people that people drum up. And, and they're so goddamn silly sometimes, and it's just frustrating. And take, take, for example, this. We're in a global pandemic right now, and, you know, health is paramount. It's being beaten over your head right now. But the snow's melting. And that means that people are starting to want to go outside. And one of those popular activities is golf. But golf isn't really what I would call an essential service. Would you disagree? Essential. I, w- I wouldn't say it's an essential service by any means, no. Well, somebody did deem it that and then took to the internet, which, you know, from the standpoint of trying to get something done is a great thing to do. From the standpoint of trying to rest easy at night is never a good thing to do. Don't go on the internet. So this guy, he decides to, to, to form a petition. He's going to, of all things, of all things, to petition, of all hills to die on, of all the battles in the world right now, and never more have they been on display. Never more has life been in perspective, I think, in the way that Western culture is so spoiled that it is right now. And this guy's worried about golf courses being considered an essential service. But here's here's the thing, Brett, is there's there's a lot of followers. There's a lot of people who were like, man, I fucking agree of anything that we could make right now. An essential service. Golf courses provide people recreation relief. And that's why I'm going to die on this hill. Forty two thousand nine hundred and seventy seven people have signed this petition to get Alberta golf courses. And, and, And let me. I'm going to let you speak in half a second, but we need to read the title of this. Alberta golf courses should receive an exemption from mandated business closures. The way that's worded pisses me off. It's entitled. It's it's inaccurate and I just can't fathom feeling that strongly about such a trivial issue he said tongue in cheek I'm so proud of everything that just came out of your mouth but I I don't I don't quite agree that they should be closed because when you are at a golf course look around look around who else is there and if you're if you're as good as a golfer as I am, you're even farther. Oh, oh I've I've seen it, my friend. I've seen you're, it. You're damn straight. <laughs> so tell me, tell me where, where, where the risk in having it is. You can restrict teams of up to four, maybe three. You can close the clubhouse and then how many people are you seeing? Sure, great. All fantastic suggestions. And you're not going to hear me balk back at any of them. I love golfing. I can't wait to step out on the links and shoot a 90 on a course I should be shooting a 72 on. I can't wait to do that with my buddies. Okay. However, that, that's not even what I'm arguing. I'm arguing the fact that somebody felt so fucking entitled based on the ability to drum up, um, 
you know, a sort of an unnecessary response online about uh, of of all the things in the world. It's not it's not homelessness. It's not to, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sounding preachy here, but the point well, is not that the golf course should not be open. The point is that the golf course should not be the first thing exempted in a global pandemic. The way that this is worded right here, where 42,977 people have agreed that they should receive an exemption from mandated business closures. Yeah, well, one of the big things too right now is GoFundMe. And uh, obviously, you and I have seen some uh, big GoFundMe pages. We've covered stories on GoFundMe pages. Uh, some people who uh, we've associated with uh, have run GoFundMe pages for things like medical bills and, uh, you know, uh, compensation for getting hurt or things like that. Um, but this isn't exactly the first time somebody has taken advantage of the internet and people's vulnerability, I guess. And, uh, when you mentioned just how angry you were about, um, all of this to me, the first thing that I kind of thought was how many times have we seen this before? So I went back and found the worst GoFundMe pages that I saw on the internet. And I want to read a couple to you. Uh, the first one is, uh, this man out of New Jersey, and it was called Help Me Transition as a Trans Financial Man. He's looking for $5 million. And in the midst of uh, transsexual and transracial, uh, he put down issues. Um, he says that he's a rich man in a poor man's body and wanted $5 million. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. At the time of the image, he had $478,000 already. Who has that kind of money to throw around? <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? And, like, the thought pattern of, oh, okay, I'm going to take advantage of people talking about this big, like, deal and stuff. You know, just take advantage of all, uh, like, one of the biggest news stories in the world too at the time just taking advantage of that i thought was ridiculous now here was one here's the one that I, I i said to you before we came on air that this is absolutely fucking crazy okay now i can't wait for your genuine response so i'm gonna pause and, and let you respond to this as we go Boy. so should, should this, i take a deep breath first because i i am i am on the brink right now i'm on yeah. the brink. i haven't even talked about the cover of nhl 21 and who the people are trying to put on that yeah so please please take a deep breath take one with me i'm an asthmatic kate okay, ready we're going in we're going in in okay. three you're you're two. an asthmatic i am an asthmatic okay. but you're gonna breathe okay. along with me you may I, have a deeper I, breath in. i'm gonna try Okay, three, two, one, in. <coughs> Close enough. Yeah, there we go. All right. So this woman gave her son industrial bleach to drink, uploaded it. <laughs> yeah, uh, this isn't done. This isn't done. <laughs> Holy cow. I That's the first part. What? No, no, no. It's not even done. Trust me. Trust me. Uh <laughs> she she gave her son industrial bleach to drink, uploaded it to YouTube, and started a GoFundMe page to sue NBC for running with the story. What? Okay, now I'm gonna read you <laughs> the story really quick that they have. Um, but but what are your initial thoughts on this? 
Okay, well, my first primary concern is, is the kid okay? Yes. Do you know that for a fact? (laughs) Well, I I researched this a little afterwards. So as far as I know, he's still alive. But um, he he does have a pre-existing, like, disorder. This wasn't just, like, out of nowhere. Okay, Uh, well, I'm guessing that disorder isn't that his stomach is made of, I don't know, drywall (laughs) or, or linoleum. I'm guessing yeah. that. So why are we bleaching the inside of our kids? Um, so, okay, I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Laurel Austin documented her son Jeremy's first dosing of chlorine dioxide on YouTube. In the 30-second video broadcast to 4,465 subscribers, Jeremy, who's 27 years old, so he's not like a 13-year-old, he's 27, uh, sits at a kitchen table as his mother narrates his mood. Then his arms seem to involuntary, tw- involuntarily twist around the other and he screams into his forearm before taking a bite of a banana. Now, before you uh, mention anything about his reaction, um, Jeremy is autistic and Jeremy is not able to talk or speak. So his the way he kind of communicates is through those motions, his involuntary twists with his arms and stuff like that. So... This is where she got the idea off the internet to give her autistic children bleach in order to cure autism. Um, I, I, is that it? Is that the end of the story? I, no, I would continue on with the story, but as, as you mentioned, we are pressed for time, and I do have just a couple more that I would like to just quickly touch on with the GoFundMe pages, but uh, it would kind of go on to say that uh, she did give it to him for about a year, and, like, his reactions were a little different. Um, it Just the entire story is very um, honestly disturbing, uh, if you have the time to read it, her name's Laurel Austin. Um, it's it, she's from Kansas. It's absolutely fucking disgraceful. Well, uh, we'll throw the link in the uh, in the show notes for this, I guess. Um, I, that just sounds like first of all that that is loaded content. You're setting me up to respond to something that's there's nothing I can say there politically correct. And funny at the same time. So I'm yeah. just going to kind of uh, scoot past that one. Um, but like, does that not seem to violate some sort of human rights? Like, I, What kind of bleach was it? There's no way. Like, are it we was, talking and sorry, mom and dad, are we talking like anal bleach? Are we talking uh, Clorox bleach? Are we talking... So as mentioned, it was industrial bleach. So as I, in the, the news story, it goes on to say it was chlorine dioxide. So for chemists and people who are a little bit more uh, with uh, chemistry, um, pe- they would know more about what that does to the body and, and all that. But, yeah, it's not, not exactly the, the coffee mate you're drinking. So we have a beautiful tool to, to, to bring this all back around. It's probably gone on longer than it should have. Sorry. That's what happens when you let me start the show pissed off. <laughs> Coming up in very short order, the one you've all been waiting for. Eric McCormick. Watch the breakdown. 
Well, that ran uh, a little longer than we thought it would, but welcome to the eighth episode of the Breakdown Podcast. Um, as Brandon mentioned, we have a little bit of a uh, fun show coming up for you. Uh, as Brendan also mentioned, the one that we've been waiting for, uh, Eric McCormack, uh, my uncle, joins us. He is Will Truman on Will and Grace. He also would go on to portray Dr. Daniel Pierce on uh, Perception that he also produced. And he also produced a show on Netflix that's on Netflix right now that you can go and watch called Travelers. We also talk about his singing career. And uh, he ends us off with uh, quite a story, Brendan. Yeah, I, it, the chat was everything that we hoped it would be and more. I certainly hope that it uh, lives up to your expectations of it as well. Uh, also, bearing in mind here that this may well be the first one you're tuning into as far as the Breakdown podcast goes. Uh, so it is uncensored, uh, just good-natured conversation. We have... The pleasure of having that with an Emmy Award winner, the show itself, Will and Grace, nominated 83 times for primetime Emmys, uh, and each of the main cast members winning one. And they were also pretty groundbreaking in the realm of LGBTQ and that community and how it was seen in modern media and and uh, maybe desensitizing uh popular culture to that kind of thing at a time where nobody else really seemed to be willing to commit to that. So uh, an excellent conversation, not only about uh, Eric's career, but uh, but about television at that time, which is a passion of ours. And after that wraps up, we're going to sort of compare and contrast uh, what the industry at that time, when there was such thing as really prime time television, and now in the streaming service era, as we'll sort of delve into. So without further ado, Brett, why don't we uh, send it off to that conversation with uh, your uncle. Watch the breakdown. Pleased to be joined here on episode eight of the Breakdown Podcast by Eric McCormick. And if you don't know that name because you're a little bit younger, perhaps from a generation even younger than us, uh, Will Truman from Will and Grace, an absolute smash hit television show from the late 90s through the mid-2000s, and then the reboot not too long ago. So, Eric, thank you so much for taking some time to join us tonight. Hey, pleasure, you guys. Uh, In fact, the the show, the the reboot, ends in a week and a half. Tonight is the second last episode of All Time Forever, so uh, it's kind of uh, fun to be doing interviews and, and, uh, and looking back on it. Do you want to start Go maybe ahead. at the at the very beginning of, of all this uh, and, and just talk a little bit about yourself? So Canadian actor, uh, and you make the jump down south of the border in the sort of early to mid-90s, is that correct? Yeah, I started in, uh, I was, I'm from Toronto, and I did a lot of theater uh, for throughout my 20s, not just in Toronto, but across the country. I did, uh, I did plays in Edmonton, Vancouver, and Winnipeg, and uh, I'll throw out New Brunswick. Uh, and I didn't really even audition for television series till I was practically 30. Uh, and that was in Toronto. I did a few episodes of shows that most of your listeners wouldn't remember called Street Legal and ENG. And um, and then I made my way to Vancouver and sort of that's where I've, I, I really fell in love with. I fell in love with that city. And then while I was living in Vancouver, I did a series in Calgary where I fell in love with uh, Brett's aunt. Brett Holden's Auntie Janet, uh, who is, uh, we've been married for, um, wow, for 23 years. 
So that's we went then from from Vancouver down to uh, to L.A. Uh, just about a year before I got Will and Grace, which was '98. And uh, and that's when our, uh, this sort of dual life, this dual Canadian American life, began. I had to drag her into it a little bit. She's she's no Alberta girl. She wasn't really looking forward to living in Los Angeles. That's true. Uh, um, well, the cat is out of the bag, as uh, um, I am your nephew. You are my uncle. But uh, um, can you kind of talk a little bit more about um, those days on Lonesome Dove? A little bit with uh, Street Legal as well. How? Kind of getting your toes in more, uh, or dipping your toes more in those uh, recurring roles, kind of uh, prepared you for something like Will and Grace. Uh, that's a good question because I really, as a theater actor, I had to really change my game. Um, when I first got to Vancouver, I, I lo- a lot of the stuff like Light Street Legal or ENG, if you see my performances there, they're awfully big. <laughs> you won't see them, but. I was still adapting to the camera, and it wasn't until I got to Vancouver and I auditioned for an episode of The X-Files, which was in its first season. That's how old I am. And I auditioned for Chris Carter, and I did this scene, and he said, yeah, just uh, do it again, but smaller. I said, okay. I did it again. He said, yeah, do it again, but just less, less, less. And I I, I think I did four auditions, and finally he said, just less. I said, if I do less, I'll be doing nothing. And he said, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm going for here. And when I finally saw David Duchovny on the show, I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, like like nothing. And it's, it took me years to learn that. It wasn't till, till the, the last series I did for, for Netflix, uh, Travelers, where I really kind of figured out what it is to, to be a, a still film actor and find that resonance. Because stillness was not required on Will and Grace uh, as, as a traditional sitcom it was it was the bigger the better and and i was probably the most subtle thing on it because as, as anyone that's seen the show knows the other three characters are are crazy cartoons and that's what makes it such a beautiful work of art in so many ways but before that uh, you had auditioned for a role as i understand it for friends is that correct that's right i got i got to uh, la my first year in, in, in la was 93 uh, I did what they call pilot season, which uh, all, all actors from everywhere come and audition for all the new shows. Didn't get anything that year. The following year, which is where I ended up getting Lonesome Dove and meeting um, Janet, uh, I auditioned a couple of times for Friends, which everybody it was one of those scripts. Everybody kind of knew was going to be big. It was just a great, funny pilot. And um, I was auditioning for the role of Ross. And uh, the guy that directed every single episode of Will and Grace directed the first 12 episodes of Friends. And uh, years later, when I was working on Will and Grace, I said to, to Jimmy, our director, I said, you know, Jimmy, I, um, I actually got to pretty close on the role of Ross. And he looked at me and said, oh, honey, you were wasting your time. They wrote the part for Schwimmer. So <laughs> that was sad to learn. That uh, that show was so interesting in so many ways because, I, I mean, it wasn't like any of them were necessarily the star. And then all of a sudden, by the time the series was over, they all were. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, whether that was a was a product maybe of the writing, um, maybe of the time that it was on, or, or maybe a bit of both. Well, it was certainly the time it was on and that there was only four networks, you know, uh, really three. And so... When a show launched, like like Friends or Seinfeld or Will and Grace, a couple of years later, 
millions of people watched it. It's so much harder these days to get an audience like that. I mean, our, our audience now for Will and Grace is a fraction of that because everyone's got so many other choices and so many other things to do in their lives. Um, but back then, a show like Friends and uh, Friends and ER launched the same night and they both became mega hits. The difference was all those kids on Friends were kids, except for I think Lisa Kudrow was possibly 30, but the rest of them were early 20s and this was their first gigantic thing. And um, whereas by the time we did our show, I was 35 when we shot the pilot of Will and Grace. And uh, Megan was older than that. And uh, so we'd all been around. We'd all done a lot of theater. And it, it didn't, it wasn't as um, shocking to us. Our, our, the, the Will and Grace fame was a little slower build. It was not as overnight as Friends was. So how was acting in a show like Will and Grace at the same time as a show like Friends being aired, what was that kind of like on set? Um, you know, how did it kind of push you more to push out the best product that you could uh, in front of the camera? Well, it's the thing about a on which there were tons of in the 90s. Uh, there's a lot fewer of them now. I think Big Bang was kind of the last really big one um, where you shoot in front of an audience. Uh, and it's... It's a very strange and wonderful combination because you it's like doing theater. You're doing a sketch uh, in front of an audience. I loved that combination. It, it kind of went away for a while when what we call single camera came in, shows like 30 Rock or whatever, where there wasn't an audience and there wasn't that sort of joke setup, joke setup uh, style. Um, but for, for me, I, I remember that, that script changes every day. So... Uh, so the, the writers would hear the jokes, say, no, that one doesn't work, rewrite. So it was a, it was a living, breathing thing that I, I think that's what I'll miss the most about it, is that unlike most sets where you spend the day waiting in your trailer for them to light the set, this Will & Grace was in front of an audience, it was live, and every day we were making it happen. So, Eric, you're, you're on air in, in what I call the appointment TV era. NBC called it the must-see TV era from 93 to 06 you're on Thursdays in the main spot and what made your show sort of unique and it was the fact that the main characters were all part of the LGBTQ community and for that time I mean look no further than the script of something like Friends to see uh, how lenient how different the times were in terms of how gay culture was approached in in television so here you are as a straight man adapting to the lead role of a gay character and i'm wondering what it was like not only for you in making that adapt and uh, um making that switch as an actor or, or adjusting as an actor but for the time that it was on air i'm curious how that was for you as well well it was uh it's what set the show apart i think it was uh it was very much a must-see TV kind of script. It was a smart, smart, funny show. But the fact that we could uh, that, that we had these two characters, Will and Jack, uh, was was a huge um, was a huge thing at the time. And uh, for me, I'd played a number of gay characters already on television and in theater, so th it wasn't a big deal to play. It was more. Uh, it was interesting to see how America, particularly, would would adapt, and they. I think that we didn't. We never tried to hit them over the head. The show was the show. We never, we never apologized for the characters. We never hid who they were, um, and we just let America figure it out. And I, I used to, I found over the years, initially girls 
young women would come up and say, oh, I love your show. Uh, and, and their boyfriends would stand there and never say anything. And then a couple of years into the show, guys would come up and go, you know, my girlfriend really likes your show. And then eventually be like, my wife and I always watch your show. So it, was, it took particularly American men a long time to admit that there was something there for them to straight American men. So can you can talk about the importance that you think that role had on on just kind of the the narrative of America and the na- narrative of uh, I guess the world at that time to what it would look like in the future now I guess Well you know we the first couple of years the fact that there were two gay characters was talked about a lot and then eventually the show just kind of got accepted and we did things that pe- weren't even mentioned in the press I mean my character got married to Tay Diggs. Not only were two men getting married, but the, one of them was black. And, and it would just, we just, we got to a point in season six, season seven, where we could do that. And middle-class America would watch it. And that was, that was probably the big, biggest thing that we, that we got away with really was just slowly but surely getting people's trust and, um, and saying, if you love these characters, then maybe there's people in your life, in your life that you've been Neglecting your son, your your the guy down the street, whoever, someone that you say, oh, I, I don't like him, he's gay, and all of a sudden you realize, well, how can I feel that way if I love these two characters on television? So I think that was kind of it, it was 2012, so t- six years after Will and Grace went off the air. Joe Biden, uh, who was vice president at the time, went on the air and said uh, to I think it was on Meet the Press, he said that he thought Will and, Will and Grace had done more to advance the cause of marriage equality than anything else. And, and it shocked us because we were, like I say, six years off the air. But it's one of those things that was insidious in a good way. We crept into people's homes and uh, changed minds slowly, I think. And, and we're ahead of your time in doing so in so many ways, at least in my opinion. Now, of course, with that came stardom. You were uh, the highest rated sitcom for adults 18 to 49, according to the Nielsen ratings from 01 to 05. So I imagine that stardom and celebrity is going to be a different experience for everybody. You had quite a bit of experience prior to, as you said, you were kind of middle aged by the time that you had really popped off with this. But what, what was what was your introduction? What was celebrity life like and, and has it sort of tapered off since well it's um it's interesting we're actually writing a, a, a script about this this now that idea of what what celebrity is for people not just a person that is the celebrity but the, for everyone around them it's a strange thing that we've we've given a lot of credit to over the years and i'm not sure we all know why or why we make people certain people celebrities at all but um for me uh, like I say, I married I, I married Brett's aunt um, when b- before I even auditioned for Will and Grace. So it's my life has been a pretty normal life, uh, marriage and, and a kid, and uh, and I I go to the grocery store every day. So my particular fame is useful sometimes when I'm promoting the show or trying to create other shows, but day to day. Celebrity isn't really a whole lot of use, so so it's uh, it's been a very practical celebrity. Let's put it that way. I, I've never, I've never had to, like for instance, we were talking about Friends before. I mean, a couple of those guys. I don't think Matt Perry ever really recovered from becoming famous. I, I don't think he's ever really known how to do it because it was so fast, it was so much, so quickly, and um, 
I never, luckily I never had that. It came late and it came at a time when I was quite happy to have a little. So you kind of answered this question uh, briefly in with what I'm or in your last question, I guess. But um, when both of us were doing our research for this, um, one of the articles that came up was just this article on you walking your dog and like what you were wearing and stuff like that. So I was kind of curious on how staying on the DL for you is kind of different now or how, how you kind of stay on the down low now. And like, I don't, do you have things like the TMZ, like tour truck coming in front of your house and stuff like that? Or is that just kind of, I don't know, like what luck, is, what is luck, that type of life look like? Don't. Uh, we, we live in a, in a great, but very quiet neighborhood. Um, and uh, at the same time, I always dress well to walk my dog because you just never know. <laughs> Simply put. Uh, 18 primetime Emmy Awards and 83 nominations. I've never aspired to be an actor, but I imagine, particularly in the realm of television, that's what you're shooting for. What was it like, not only for you, but every one of the main cast members won an Emmy at some point for one reason or another. So that's got to be not only a bonding aspect, but but I would imagine a, a lifelong dream for you. Is that the case? 100%. 100%. And uh, in fact, by sheer coincidence, the night I, I won, my award was given to me by another Canadian, uh, Kim Cottrell, who was doing Sex in the City at the time. But it's uh, it, it very much was a dream and not... Not in a shallow way, not in a, oh, look, I have a shiny award, as much as when you, when you get into this business, you just want other people to accept you, to respect you, to say you've... Uh, and particularly as a kid from the suburbs of Toronto, who knows? I mean, you, you can get a job. It doesn't... It, uh, lots of people get jobs. But to finally one day have someone say... And, and for me in particular... Uh, my, big, my big comedy growing up that I, that I loved was called Get Smart. Um, and... Uh, the the lead on that show, a man named Don Adams, won the uh, the Emmy Award for a lead actor in a comedy in 1970. And for me to win that same exact award 30 years later was particularly special. It it it, uh, it was something tangible that I could say, okay, uh, I did it. That's so cool. Um, one of the last questions, I guess, I will ask about uh, Will and Grace. We'll kind of uh, move off of Will and Grace here, but uh, um, you mentioned that uh, the the finale for the this uh, season and the for the series as well, right, is coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yes, uh, April twenty third will be the very very last one, which we shot in December, and it's you know we we all, we'd already ended the show. 13, what is it, 14 years ago. So to have another chance to, to do it again, to have a chance to end it again, was really nice. There was a real sense of being a little bit older, a little bit more appreciative of what we have. And uh, that's certainly how I felt. I That set, um, that uh, sitcom sets in particular can become very iconic because it's the same set every week. And uh, I always said that I, when I'm on that set, when I'm in that kitchen, and Will's cooking. I always feel like, like you know, Captain Picard on the uh, on the Enterprise. It's just that's my ship. That kitchen, that that kitchen, and that living room are my my ship. And it was sad. It was sad, but but uh, it was really satisfying to say goodbye. 
I could I could get that sense just by watching the trailer for the reboot. It was incredible how you guys, you know, looped together almost exactly how you just described just the emotion of of your relationship with the show and each other and the set and that sort of thing. And that was to fire it all back up. And so I imagine it was quite an emotional event to to wind it all back down. But in the meantime of that, so between 06 and 2017, you had a real um, break and an opportunity to sort of explore different realms of the industry. I, I understand you did some some producing and that sort of thing. So maybe um, just because of our target demographic here, Eric, I need to ask you right out of the gate with this. You did some voice work for Robot Chicken and American Dad. Describe that experience, if you will. <laughs> I think if you add my voice experience on those two shows together, it probably adds up to a minute and a half. Uh, there was there was just a time when producers of those shows and uh, uh, Simpsons, all those shows were they, they were they were sharing sharing talent, sharing voices. Um, there may even be kids on, on you listening to your your show that liked liked the reboot of uh, Pound Puppies, which I was one of the lead voices on. Uh, so I, it, it, voice stuff is. Fun, but you don't. Unless you're one of the lead voices on The Simpsons, it's, it, it comes and goes. It's, it's it's something you do in a in an hour one morning. With perception, I you know Dr. Daniel Pierce was this neuropsychiatrist who had schizophrenia. I was wondering what it was like preparing for a role like that because it was kind of it was it's obviously much different than Will and Grace. So um, I, I'm just curious on how you get kind of into that mindset for uh, Dr. Daniel Pierce. Perception was the first time I had to do a lot of research because I was I had to represent not only the neuroscience community and and the the college professor community, but most importantly the uh, the schizophrenia uh, community and mental and representing mental illness um, appropriately and uh, authentically and uh, so that was that was an ongoing thing week week after week. Uh, the research involved in, in the physicality of that and how it manifests itself um, was, was huge, and I loved it. I loved having that kind of responsibility. Do you think that being an actor and having so much experience in that realm allowed you to be better at other parts of the industry when you started to dip your toes into something like producing? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I've... Some actors... And I don't mean this as an insult. They just they don't see the big picture. They don't want to. Their job is just to play their role. That's all they want, and that's that's how they were trained. I, I always saw everything. I saw everybody's job. I, I saw what the whole story was, even the part, even the scenes I wasn't in, and I I knew how the whole piece, whether it be a play or or a, a television show, had to piece together. So it definitely helped when I finally got a chance to produce and eventually uh, direct to have. Had all that time, watched great directors, watched uh, strong producers, and talked a lot to writers, particularly. Uh, so you were also uh, a producer for Travelers, uh, which you mentioned a little earlier, um, which was a co-production with Netflix, right? Yeah. Um, so it also aired on Showcase here in Canada, but... Uh, I want. I wanted to know what working with Netflix was kind of like. I heard, or I've heard that it's kind of um, a little bit more loose and more to your creative freedom. But I was wondering what what your um, experience was like with Netflix. Uh, it was it was great, particularly once we 
got into it. Uh, Showcase eventually um, backed off, and it became just a Netflix show, including Netflix Canada. Um, they're they're not particularly hands on. They let you do your thing. They they once they see that you know what you're doing. Uh, not me in particular, but the the creator Brad Wright, uh, my fellow producers. Once once they saw the whole show, uh, knew which direction it was going. The creative freedom was was breathtaking, actually. And and um, I re- what I love about I love that show. I, I was very proud of it. It has a real beginning, middle, and end. Uh, three seasons. But what I love about Netflix is that it's still there. You can tell your, you know, your young listeners, if they've never heard of it, they can, they can go find it today and watch um, 32 great episodes of television. And I'm the old guy in it. It's, it's actually a very young cast. Uh, a lot of them, most of them were in their 20s and they're fantastic. Everybody in that show uh, was fantastic. Is there anything that really stands out to you other than the mediums on which it's available that's really changed about the television industry in your time and, and being involved so deeply in it? Yeah, it's actually a really good question because it, is, it isn't just about the fact that there's lots of platforms and lots of choice. It's also that audiences have gotten smarter. Um, there was a time in the 50s, 60s, 70s where television was what you were fed and it, you just took what, and so they didn't have to be smart. You'd watch it anyway. You relied on, particularly in the 70s, you rely on the movies. to go. You'd go out of the house to go to the movies for challenging fare. And, and television was almost, almost across the board not that great. It, there were great shows, but for the most part, that's not what television was known for. And that started to change in the 70s with a producer like Norman Lear, who produced All in the Family and... Uh, Maud and into the 80s with Hill Street Blues and slowly but surely producers stopped sort of insulting the intelligence of the average person and started saying, hey, what if you had a really smart show? What if it was a smart comedy? What if it was a smart drama? What if we dared to show some nudity or use some bad language and we didn't just do everything like it was 1965? And I think the result for me right now, particularly here in quarantine, I'd rather watch most television series that are happening on streaming services than I would most movies. I I think that the daring that has started over the last 15 years, Sopranos through Breaking Bad, through all the stuff we have to choose from now, uh, has made for smarter viewers and uh, smarter actors. So what is what are some of your favorite uh, shows that are on right now? Some shows that are uh, maybe doing it right uh, production wise or or uh, directing wise or acting wise. What are some of your favorite shows that are out there right now? Oh, man, um, I just I just love Ozark. I just finished all three seasons of Ozark. It's incredible. Um, I loved like I say I loved Breaking Bad. That's going back a few years. Um, I loved on Netflix is a show called You. The first season of You was great. Um, I just uh, there's a show I, I don't think it's Netflix. But it's it's hard to find actually. It's called Get Shorty, uh, and three seasons of that. I I just adored that. And these are these are smart, just smartly written um, shows that I get very very involved in. I'm ba- I've gotten back into Better Call Saul, which I I haven't I didn't finish the first time around. Um, I'm, I'm drawn. I'm drawn to darker shows. I must say. Um, and meanwhile, my kid. My kid is sitting in his room when he's not doing his homework. He's watching all ten seasons of The Office, which I guess 
a lot of kids have discovered, <laughs> which is okay. Because The Office was on at the same time that Will and Grace was back right. in the day. So right. it's funny to see him not relate at all to Will and Grace, but just devour The Office. That's one of the shows that I've definitely started, uh, or not started. I love that show as well. How I Met Your Mother is another one. But uh, um, let's kind of shift to um, kind of your charity work. You're the spokesperson for um, the Canadian Cancer Society. Uh, you've won a, an award with uh, Project Angel Food and with GLAD as well. Uh, can you kind of talk about uh, your work with uh, those charities and uh, just how why it's so important to you to uh, to be able to give back? Well, I think, I think there's, there's two aspects. There's one, once you start, once you get a little celebrity, you realize that you can use it for good or you can not. And so... Um, particularly with Will and Grace, there was a lot of opportunity in 98, 99, 2000 to do good for um, LGBTQ-related charities. Uh, Angel Food was one of those, the Human Rights Campaign. Um, and, um, and then once Perception came along, there was an opportunity to do things, uh, some, several mental illness-related um, causes. I've, we've always loved animals. The, the, the other part of this really is that... Um, Almost all of it, I could say, is, is a result of, of your Auntie Janet, that really it was, it was her that, that said, okay, we have a little money, we have a little um, awareness, let's, let's make sure that we're, that we're doing good with it. So uh, she's really been the, um, the divining rod when it comes to all things charity, for sure. You had the experience of singing both national anthems at the 2004 NHL All-Star Game in Minnesota, I believe. Do you want to share that story? Uh, okay, so so I already I warned Brett before that I thought I I said if this guy if you guys are going to talk about sports I'm going to be useless because I am just lame I am I don't I I know nothing about hockey but there I was being offered to sing the national anthems at this All Star game and I don't even remember who played I just remember that at the, at the intermission the bare naked ladies played that's all I knew hey right and, uh, nothing wrong with that <laughs> Stephen Page still with them at that time too I believe. Very good point. He was, and they were brilliant. But what was fun was that it happened. It was February eighth of that year, which happens to be my buddy Bart's uh, birthday. Now Bart is the opposite of me. Bart, there's nothing about hockey that Bart doesn't know. He's insane, and I love it. And so he, I, I got to bring him as my guest. And there I was warming up my voice and preparing to sing. And Bart was wandering through the locker room before the game, getting autographs from people. It was. <laughs> fantastic. It was the best birthday you'd ever had. Interesting because um, that's the aspect of your career that doesn't really get talked about a lot is your singing. Um, you have a close relationship with Elton John or Sir Elton John um, and you recorded a song with him called uh, The Greatest Discovery. Can you kind of talk about um, your relationship with Sir Elton John and uh, how that song kind of came about as well? Well, it's kind of a it's a long great but I'll tell the short version of the story but just that um, when I was in theater when I was in high school I was doing a lot of theater and it was all musical theater and I I was one of the people that was in all those shows with me in Godspell and Pippin and the Fantastics was David Furnish who years later would marry Elton John and so we lost touch through our twenties but we became friends again in our thirties and Elton loved the show and it did. Uh, Janet and I would have we had Elton and David over for dinner. This is over the time that uh, 
that Brett's cousin Finn was like just six months old and and Elton came over one night and we had this new piano and I you've got to christen the piano so Elton John sat down in our living room I'm staring at the piano right now and uh, and he said what would you like me to play and I was I thought this is my opportunity to prove to him to show him that I'm a big fan not just I'm not going to say Rocket Man like some <laughs> schmuck so, so I asked for this obscure song. I said, uh, I've seen that movie too from Goodbye Elbert Road. And he looked up at me and said, I don't remember that fucking song. <laughs> so we became, <laughs> we became fast friends after that. But he actually ended up doing an episode of Will and Grace playing himself. He was hysterical in it. Uh, and we've just stayed friends over, over the years. And I, I, I ho- I've hosted uh, events for him. The song... That uh, that you mentioned, the greatest discovery is uh, the song he played. In f- it's a song about a little kid, and he played it that night uh, on that piano in front of Finnegan, who was uh, who was six months old. Uh, I ended up recording it, actually not with Elton. I ended up recording it uh, for an album, sort of a lullaby album, because it's a very lullaby kind of song. But I did end up writing. Uh, here's another one that maybe a lot of your listeners won't even remember, but their mother's love is Barry Manilow. And I, I did end up writing a song uh, with Barry Manilow that I recorded with him, and I sang, and he played the piano. So, it's all of that was the result of uh, of, of Will and Grace and the strange guest stars that we had, and 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 uh, strange opportunities that came our way. But yeah, singing was always a big piece of of the pie. I've I've uh, done Broadway, sung on Broadway, and and um, it's always it's it's kind of like my secret. My special secret, I love, I love acting, but I really love singing. And a different way to have that, like a different creative outlet. I think it's important, and, and you would have learned this as well as the next guy in that 11-year gap, but having an opportunity to sort of flex different creative muscles. Um, we're getting a little long in the tooth, and boy, I feel like we could talk all night about this, but you, you know, you sort of talked about the opportunities that came up through uh, through the stardom and through the show and encountering some incredible people. Uh did you get any experiences on like late night talk shows? I, I think you guys were on Oprah at some point, or certainly you were. Um, but maybe just a, a sort of a peek behind the curtains at what that's like before you before you hit the stage. Uh, oh yeah, that's. I mean, I am. I did them all. I didn't. I didn't do Johnny Carson. He was already gone. But I did uh, Jay, Jay Leno and uh, and Conan and Colbert and all those guys. Uh, Letter. I did Letterman once. Um, th- those things are always nerve wracking as hell because the, the, they, they've got a four guests a night, they've got a show to do. They, they and so the, the landing a few good jokes was always a big deal to me. Um, I always found, uh, Conan O'Brien very easy, very, very welcoming. Uh, I found Letterman terrifying. Um, but Oprah, we did Oprah a couple of times. My favorite story, but my mother, who's gone now, but was she, uh, she was honored here in LA, uh, for surviving breast cancer. It was her and Christina Applegate's mom and we're honored at this luncheon. And afterwards we're all dressed nicely. My wife and I took my, my mother, my father to the Beverly Hills hotel. There was no one there. It was lunchtime. It was after lunch. It was mid afternoon. We had a drink. And the only other person at the polo lounge was Oprah Winfrey. And I went over and said, you got to say hi to my mom because she just, was honored for breast cancer and Oprah came over and talked to my mom for five minutes. It was, it was one of those great gifts you want to be able to 
to give your mother. Absolutely. Uh, as mentioned, as Brendan mentioned, rather, um, uh, we are running a little bit out of time, but I do want to bring up one more, uh, I guess, guest appearance that uh, you had as yourself on a show, and that was Hell's Kitchen. Um, Hell's Kitchen was, was like super big. I remember watching that in like my preteen years, my teen years. Um, I was wondering what it was like being a part of that production from the guest perspective. We always saw just like the behind the scenes and stuff, but um, what was it like as a guest seeing everything going on and seeing, uh, I guess, uh, Chef Gordon Ramsay at his finest? Well, you know, it's a big restaurant and a lot of the people in that restaurant for that particular episode are just regular people having dinner. So the, the cameras, I, I don't know who else was a guest that night, like a celebrity guest, but cameras were surrounding us all the time and they were constantly pouring wine, constantly. And the, the dinner took, I don't know, two and a half hours before we got the main course. And so by the time the, the lamb, I had lamb, it came out, it was undercooked and I was way overcooked. I was drunk as hell. And I <laughs> knew I had to send it back. I had to, because it was terrible. But I, and I felt embarrassed and, the, and I thought, well, at least this part will be on television. So I said, I'm really sorry that I asked to send this back. And then four minutes later, we could see, even though it was far away, we could see Ramsey screaming at someone and smashing plates. And then I thought, that's me. I did that. I <laughs> <laughs> fired because of me. And, uh, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on your on your podcast, but I, we went backstage afterwards, and I said, uh, "I'm really sorry about the lamb. That was me." And he said, "Oh no, that was great. I was dying to get rid of that cunt anyway." <laughs> so, so he's very much the same guy that he portrays. Is that fair to say? Exactly who he presents himself as. That's a, that's a that's a lovely, classy way to end your podcast. Yeah, and what better way to punctuate it? Uh, Eric McCormick, this, the pleasure was all ours. Thank you so much for your insight, your time tonight. Uh, this has been a wonderful sort of deep dive into a lot deeper than I think we thought we were going to get, certainly this soon on the Breakdown Pod. So again, a tip of the cap to you. Thank you. Take care, you guys. Good luck. Watch the breakdown. Do you have any other like famous family members you want to line up for us to interview? That was a total clout grab for us, but in the same breath, like what an incredible, incredibly insightful interview right through the whole industry, the whole realm of, well, it sounds like he's triple threat entirely. Yeah. And, and something interesting too is, uh, that that's never really been something that I was able to kind of dive into for myself personally. So it was really cool to uh, be able to listen and understand some of the stories that he was able to tell and uh, uh, tell us and, and be able to talk to him in that type of capacity for um, in his career. You know, I've always just known him as Uncle Eric. So it was nice to get to know a little bit more about uh, the actor and the perform performer, uh, Eric McCormack. Well, and I think people are going to wonder, too, like, how often do you get to see him? Do you go see him every so often and they must have a place in los angeles yeah he said la was home so yeah so I, I see them about once a year whenever i travel down to la he's you know staying in la doing uh will and grace lately so um always working on a lot of stuff and uh whenever i'm able to see him i uh go down to see him and uh we always make time for each other so it's great i think what's cool is a lot of the same actors from that first and then 
listen, people from our parents' generation are going to call me crazy for, for saying that shows like the 70s TV boom, like that was probably the golden era of TV, so to speak. But I'm talking prime time. I'm talking when most families had a television set in the household. And that really kicked off in the 90s when, you know, the technological revolution started to get into full gear and 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 burst right up through the mid 2000s up until social media and then ultimately streaming services come forward. But this is where and we're going to dip into the numbers a bit here. It's cool to see someone like Jennifer Aniston has has thrived on a program from that era. But because she's retained that popularity and retained that relevance um, and syndication has helped that, as we know, you can still watch Friends everywhere. But the rebooting of it with Netflix has allowed her to be relevant modern day as well. And continue picking up high paying gigs off the fame of friends, even though there's like a 25 year gap in the, in the start dates of those things. And off of streaming websites, uh, we kind of see those ratings, uh, those numbers and those ratings for, uh, those bigger name TV shows, uh, whether they're from the nineties or the early two thousands kind of start to wane out, uh, into the 2010s because of, like I said, those, uh, streaming services. So the top movies or the top TV shows rather um, that are going on right now from like the 2010, I guess, year to uh, now, those top numbers have really started to come down. And assumption wise, I guess, assumably, presumably, words are always fun around here, um, <laughs> are, are lower. Those bigger Name TV shows are getting uh, less viewers. And as Eric even mentioned, the viewers that uh, were normally watching Will and Grace in uh, the 2000s, they have a fraction of those numbers now in the second run of, of Will and Grace. A lot of people are uh, weary of of sequels and and reboots and that sort of thing. So, but it, but it is a different era. And the other thing is maybe part of what made it so special was how groundbreaking it was then. And and there's going to be those diehards who still love those characters now. Um, but there might be a large part of the population who because LGBTQ culture has become way more mainstreams in the eleven year gap between. Uh, runs, um, maybe it's not as relevant a conversation anymore. Maybe it's a conversation that's being had so frequently and been had so frequently over the last certainly five years, I would feel comfortable saying that it doesn't need to be on the forefront. But let's get into the numbers of this a little bit. Um, as far as network primetime salaries, so you're pretty well off, but this can also be, you know, as we touched on briefly anyway, a uh, cause for pressure and competition, maybe more so back then than now. Um, but you look at the shows that, that have the highest paying per episode salary for their lead character. And most of them are quite a bit older. Uh, it starts, it starts, I'm going to bury the lead a little bit here though. It starts with what I did not expect it to at all. And then it goes down the, to somewhere where, okay, so we start to see a guy like Charlie Sheen come up on this list. I am being supportive. I just didn't know we were going to play Mr. Potato Head with our boobs. <laughs> he was making $1.8 million per episode in 2010-2011, which I guess would have been right before he went batshit crazy on the network and all that stuff. So when it peaked, right, you're talking right around $2 million being the highest salary that you would see 
I don't know. Are we seeing that sort of thing now with Netflix, Brett? Um, I would assume so. I would assume we're seeing a lot more with with the streaming websites in general, because even streaming websites in 2012 to streaming websites to 2015 to streaming websites in 2020 are, are totally different. You know, Netflix did start to run the show, start to run the the industry almost in uh, the early two, 2010s. But now we're seeing more streaming websites like Disney Plus, Hulu, uh, Crave, uh, Amazon Prime that are able to put out not only stream great older TV shows, but also are able to produce great TV shows as well. That also makes Netflix kind of run for their money. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, Netflix to me right now is, is as far as, you know, fictional television shows that that's got to be right neck and neck with HBO and game of Thrones is the most recent example that you're going to see. That isn't the surprise first place winner. Okay. As far as salaries. And that was every one of the main characters, uh, Peter Dinklage, uh, Lena Headley, Amelia Clark, Kit Harrington, all of them earned a million dollars an episode in 2017, 18. So that was their final season, I believe. Um, that's pretty standard. James Gandolfini in The Sopranos. Tony Soprano earned a million an episode. That was 06, 07. Sarah Jessica Parker, Sex in the City, a million an episode. I th- I'm pretty sure it's well documented that each of the Friends characters, to avoid, um, you know, clashing with each other or jealousy or anything like that, they all took $1 million per episode when they renegotiated. That was between 02 and 04. Uh, and go down the list. Jerry Seinfeld, same thing. So that's kind of the pinnacle. And then there's a very small snapshot, a very small snapshot above that where where people make more. But you'll notice that none of those are Netflix shows right now. These are, it's an interesting you know, paradox, I think, because we're seeing the switch. We're seeing like there's, I believe it's 60%. It says right here, 60% of, uh, of households in the United States have Netflix. Something else that also kind of runs in my head that when you started talking about this was um, those older shows, I guess, the money wasn't necessarily, didn't exactly equal the same, I guess, uh, as it would now like the money that kind of weighs out for those stars and, and even for the younger, or I guess the background actors, not the background actors, the co-stars, I guess is what I'm looking for. The co-star money is uh, getting even higher as well. It's inflating as well to see um, just how much you can get for a co-starring job. So I think it's definitely interesting to see um, those younger or those older numbers start to stand up just as well with today's numbers. Um, just because of how a the economy is start to really look towards the uh, streaming websites and and the vast majority of new TV shows and and genres and how much there really is and it, I it, get watered down it, too. It, exactly I think that's that's a very good way of describing it and that can be a good and a bad thing right because in a lot of senses and you know now that we've got so, so let's call it what four major players you've got Amazon Prime Netflix Crave and uh, and Disney Plus there's your there's your big four in my opinion um, but a lot of people because of the exclusive content 
content being so good on on several of those things. And Amazon Prime in the last probably two years has really made a push. They got a great thing going with John Krasinski there. I know a lot of people like that show, uh, despite me not being able to remember the name of it off the top of my head. John, uh, Ryan. I know I'm in the minority of that. Um so so now it's like what the what do you what do you do because people were like oh I I'm just gonna cancel my cable save a bundle of money and get Netflix <laughs> and that was awesome but it was awesome for a very short period of time because that same guy has his kid or his wife or or his son or his whatever telling him that they want Disney Plus and oh by the way now you you, you need the out of uh, markets regional hockey package so you're paying 199 dollars a year right so. It, it's amazing that the how thinly everything is being spread, and yet in the in the grand scheme of things, are you really saving any money by cutting cable? What you're saving is being beaten over the head by advertisements. So if you're really, you know, one of those people, great. Um, but I don't think that you're you're rolling back a lot. Another uh, show from uh, Amazon Prime that's really kicking is uh, Hunters, which I, I love too. Um, but. Uh, we, we talked about numbers kind of being watered down and I guess really the the pool talent pool, I guess, of TV shows being kind of watered down. Uh, you talked about your numbers with the money. I thought about the ratings. I, I, I'm just like watered down is not the right word because the watered down stands to me in my mind that, that, that it's bad. The content is better now than it's ever been. The, but the, and the access to are, are the, watered down. The it, it it's it's expanded. It's like you're swimming in a bigger ocean that we've ever seen before. But I guess like you know, if you're listening to this, don't take watered down in this sense as being a bad thing. It's a very very good thing. Uh, so I looked at the numbers for uh, the ratings. The numbers, basically. What do they mean? Um, kind of looking at the numbers from shows from 2000 to 2010, the popular shows around then were kind of like ER, uh, Friends, Survivor was up there as well. Uh, both Tuesday and Wednesday episodes of American Idol were always in the top 30 um, around those years. Um, and those numbers, when they were peaking, we're at around the 17, the 16 per- percent. Um, I don't know exactly how to explain how these numbers work, but in regards to the numbers, you normally saw the highest, most rated, top rated TV shows up towards the 17s, the 18s. We're now from 2013 to 2019. Those numbers for the big shows really have only peaked at 13. Uh, like the NCISs, the Big Bang theories, and one show that's kind of stuck around, which isn't really a show, it's a sport, is NFL football. Yeah, that's an interesting one, and I almost don't even want to include that in the conversation because to me it's an outlier. Um, but but you're right, and and the popularity. I just don't think you know our population is growing. The access to this kind of thing is growing, and yet the the what's growing even faster than that is the amount available to you. So, you know, depending on what stand side of the fence you stand on, on, on how much you want to spend, like you put it this way, if money isn't an object to you, you can have access to pretty well anything that you want in high quality stream of streaming and streaming in all likelihood without advertisements. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a very, 
progressive time that we're living in. And I think we're going to have a lot of books come out of this. This is the kind of thing that it's going to be really fun for a lot of post-secondary and, and, you know, media theorists and that sort of thing to study the rapid acceleration and the financial ties to all of it. Just for a reference as well, uh, ER, which uh, peaked at around uh, 15 in uh, the early 2000, early 2000s rather, uh, in the 90s, peaked at around 22% in uh, the 90s. And then in the 80s, uh, the Cosby show got up to 35%. So you could kind of see in the advancement of technology and just how much uh, more television shows, more of a selection as uh, positive of a way we can put it, watered down television shows uh, came through, um, you know, the more those numbers for the big shows started to uh, wane down. So I teased this. I teased this quite hard uh, right off the top when I started yammering away about this. Um, and that is the number one. Who's, who is the highest grossing actor? At $1.8 million, Charlie Sheen is a great guess. I think Charlie Sheen would be certainly one of my guesses, and a lot of people would have to agree. Um, it's actually Jennifer Aniston. But not for friends. And this is what I was saying is how she is. She's retained her popularity because, I mean, A, she's absolutely beautiful, um, you know, and, and, and then B, amongst many other things. And I'm going to sell this short right here. But again, the, the syndication and, and having friends available on Netflix to introduce the show to a whole new generation and make a whole new generation of fans that has launched her now to two million dollars an episode hosting um, something on a very advanced streaming platform and Apple TV Plus and and, uh, and it's called The Morning Show. And frankly, I've let you bozos handle this long enough. We are doing this my way. She stars alongside Reese Witherspoon, who does share that same $2 million salary. Um, so as far as actual check being signed off, highest earning per episode ever, it's somebody who shouldn't come as a surprise. In my opinion, for a show, that kind of does come as a surprise. And, uh, you know, it's something that we haven't mentioned as well with that. The obvious uh thing to talk about was the the two people who occupy the number one spot are two female actors two actresses yeah yeah and and i i love that i think that i'd like for in the future that not to even be a talking point right it should just be of that course. commonplace and i think and definitely will be um we'll wrap this up shortly here but as far as like okay brendan these numbers are all great but what about inflation Good point. Very good point. We've had those numbers accounted for. And it, and theoretically, that's why I said before, check, written out, hand, hand pen, $2 million. But adjusted for inflation, Ray Romano, for Everybody Loves Raymond, Brett, has this at a $2.225 million salary. Stop. You are a jerk. What? You're really disappointed now, aren't you? I'm not disappointed huh? i'm scared my parents are currently watching that show um like over again like they've started recording them over and like watching them late and i'm like what like how how does this comedy still stand up but it does it does um i was watching one where ray forgot his uh he has twins i guess in the show and he brought the wrong twin to the doctor's office and the big brother i think <laughs> he is comes and he's like wait, what do you mean this twin doesn't have uh, 
isn't sick. And then the big brother comes into the doctor's office, takes the wrong one, plops the right one down. I was like, that's pretty funny. That's really funny. It was, I think the writing style of that time. And we, 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 don't bubble wrap things per se, but there is because of the internet a lot more uh, visible sensitivity to certain issues. And the writing for some of these sitcoms didn't necessarily have to adhere to as strict as standards or or could go to that level in order to get the laugh. Now what I think happens is because there's a little bit of of hesitancy, you can even hear it in the way that I'm trying to pick my words right now, that you can't necessarily say things freely, but you can certainly demonstrate them differently. So now we're getting edgier TV shows. That was the real draw to something as gory as The Walking Dead, right? Or something as vivid and real as Game of Thrones. So that's something to consider as well as perhaps, you know, the societal shift and the societal sensitivity to some of these things that at that time were considered humorous, at least more openly, um, it's changed the way that television is consumed, but television is clearly not dying. First of all, I think it's important. We state that. And it seems to be very, very in flux. It seems to be manipulated by what goes on around it. And I think that's really fascinating and something that I'd love to continue exploring here on the breakdown pod. Another show we didn't mention as well, which is two of our both one of our favorite shows, breaking bad too. So, uh, um, of course, with all that being said, uh, that will do it for episode eight of the Breakdown Podcast. Uh, we want to thank uh, Eric McCormack for uh, joining us for uh, today's episode. Uh, of course, you can find us on Instagram at the Breakdown underscore Pod. You can find me at the Real Holden Forty, and you can find Brendan at Brendan Escott. That's Brendan with an E and Escott with two T's. I do also want to mention that we have a couple other great episodes that are waiting for you on our Apple Podcasts and our Spotify as well. Uh, a couple episodes back, we had uh, respiratory therapist Stu Lemfers join us to talk about what it's been like on the front lines of COVID-19. He's in Vancouver, B.C., uh, battling that uh, as well. So uh, we have that episode up. We also have FKB uh, guitarist Alex Vidoric. Uh, we talked to him about uh, what it's like being a local band and uh, the rise of FKB as well from small town Alberta. And uh, our last episode, we also had local comedian Adam Blank join the show, talk about the local scene there in comedy as well. And we talked a little wrestling as well with him. Uh, WrestleMania was a few weeks ago, so we talked to him about that and uh, AEW too. So all of that in the past as well in the future we have some exciting things coming up as well. We'll be taking a look at the NFL draft. We've got an exciting Instagram live event planned for that as well, but we'll keep you posted if you follow us on Instagram. As mentioned, that is at the breakdown underscore pod. And with that, we out. Watch the breakdown.